Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway for Sunday, March 4, 2018. My name is James Marino and in the broadcast today we have Michael Portantier and Jan Simpson. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. Did you make it through the rain? I made it through the rain. (laughs) Exactly. Thank you for the Barry reference. (laughs) Also with us is Jan Simpson. Jan is the director of the Arts and Culture Journalism Program at Cooney's Graduate School of Journalism, also also writes for TDF Stages, American Theater, and has her own blog at Broadway and Me. Good morning, Jan. Morning. Uh, Also, Jan, uh, on the Broadway Radio Network, you had a release of uh, Hamid Chowdhury's uh, discussion about an ordinary Muslim down at New York Theater Workshop. Uh, that's a great listen that came out yesterday. You're uh, you're very busy. I'm busy, um, <laughs> and that's an interest. And that's an interesting uh, play. Uh, uh, he's an interesting guy too. Yeah, I was I was very interested about the uh, uh, some of the points that you had brought up with him about explaining his plays within the plays. And he had said, well, now that I have one play out, I think I'm going to explain less. Yes. (laughs) It's very interesting. (laughs) All right. So let's just uh, jump right into our reviews. Both of you got a chance to see The Amateurs. So, Michael, why don't you start off, off with The Amateurs? The Amateurs is a play by Jordan Harrison, who wrote one of my favorite plays of recent years, Marjorie Prime, um, which is about a future time in which when people die, they can be recreated in facsimiles and uh, details of their lives kind of loaded into these facsimile creations of them. And the main point being uh, that these primes are created to comfort the the living, the relatives and the friends who are still living. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful play. And it was uh, made into an equally wonderful movie, both starring Lois Smith. Um, the amateurs, the subject matter has absolutely nothing to do w- with anything like that, and which, of course, is fine. This is set in 14th century Europe. And we meet uh, this troop of uh, itinerant medieval medieval pageant players, and they are trying to basically outrun the Black Death. Um, believe it or not, there's a lot of comedy in this show, even though it's about the Black Death. And I uh, that thing you said, what was that comment you just made about an ordinary Muslim explaining the plays within the play? Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know. I wouldn't say if – the amateurs has that precisely, but it has a lot of meta uh, sections in it where the actors continually or frequently step out of the action and address the audience as themselves theoretically. Um, in fact, at one point, uh, the cast includes Thomas J. Ryan, Kyle Beltran, Jennifer Kim, Quincy Tyler Bernstein, Michael Cyril Creighton, and Greg Keller. And I, I know at one point, I, I remember specifically that Quincy Tyler Bernstein referred to herself as Quincy. So um, there's a lot of that. And it seemed almost to me, this is interesting, it seemed to me almost like two different plays, that there was the there were the sections where they the actors were appearing as these itinerant pageant players and then there were the sections where they were stepping out as, as themselves and then I, then in retrospect I looked uh, closely more closely at the program and it says additional material by Heidi Schreck so I don't know if 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 that's where the division was or uh, or what I, I it's it's odd to see a, a credit like that in a play for a play in a in a program but anyway I um, I thought that it was an intriguing concept and uh, it, it at first it grabbed me uh, I think it's supposed to be aside from everything else uh, a metaphor for other times of crisis, including perhaps the AIDS crisis, uh, although that didn't come across very strongly. Um, the cast w- was was very strong in their acting. I, I've seen all of these people in, in several previous plays, 
and musicals, and they've been really, really good. Um, and it's a very nice production at the Vineyard. But um, I wasn't sure uh, they're trying to, you know, uh, I guess make the point about how actors uh, – the show must go on and they're they're really trying to keep doing it even in the face of this tremendous plague um so there you can see the obviously the aids metaphor as well but uh but i wasn't sure uh, about the process of of the play as it kept going and and i wasn't actually sure that the actors stepping out of the action uh really helped i think if anything maybe it it hurt uh, a little more and i didn't know if the modern parallels needed to be made so clear uh, in those sections. So I'm curious to hear what Jan thought about it, because I I did have those very mixed feelings about it. The play made me grumpy. Mm-hmm. I, um, like you, uh, have enjoyed uh, Jordan Harrison's previous works in addition to Marjorie Prime he did another show that I saw on light called Maple and Vine and he likes these conceits where he's playing with time and what that how people adjust to uh, those prompts and Maple and Vine there exists this community where you can go back to the 1950s because that was a simpler time and couples go and join this community and find of course that it's not as simple as they had thought this play uh as you say starts off in the the 14th century and starts off with one of those uh morality plays and it's 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 sort of amusing to watch it uh as it begins and then Members of the company are struck by the plague and the other uh, remaining members of the troop are trying to get to this uh, nobleman's house because they believe that they're, they'll be protected from the plague. And then, as Michael says, and this is a spoiler, but there's I don't think any way to talk about the show without spoiling it. Then it sort of stops. And one of uh, the the actors, Michael Cyril Creighton, tells you that he is portraying the playwright. And for about, I don't know, 10 minutes, the playwright tells you what the play is about, why he's written it. He acknowledges that this might annoy some people, this conceit. And I, it was... I guess too meta for me. And I also sort of feel if you have to stop your play and tell me what your play is about, your play is not working. I, I don't know what else to say beyond that. I thought, agree with you that the actors were all uh, very good, but I was just sitting there so annoyed by the, the, the conceit that, I don't think I was able to enjoy uh, the performances that they gave. Yeah, I wonder if uh, what happened was during the writing that there was the story about these these medieval pageant players in the 14th century, and perhaps the playwright had trouble finishing it and added those other sections to flesh it out. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that, on the other hand, maybe that was part of the concept from the beginning. But I guess, uh, and there was so much of the stepping out uh, and presenting themselves as the the actor or the, the playwright uh, that it uh, it just felt excessive and i'm not sure if it was necessary at all it and it wasn't well done i mean we've had some other shows um over the past couple of years where playwrights have done that so i guess mm. this is a new conceit uh, you may remember if you saw an octoroon um brandon jacob jenkins it begins with the playwright sort of wrestling with the play, wrestling with his role as a black man, as a black playwright. Mm. Uh, but it seemed more uh, 
integrated into the story he was telling. Uh, uh, Kate Benson, uh, I think Kate Benson, Sarah Benson, I get the names confused, forgive me, ladies. Um, the uh, playwright who did Porto, she actually does the narration for her play. Um, and the, so the playwright is very present um, sort of like a narrator in a novel. And yet that too works. So I'm not saying that these meta conceits can't work. Right. But this one just seemed clunky. Yeah, yeah. And I do wonder about that additional material by right. Heidi Schreck. Right. Credit. Right. All right. That's the Amateurs at Vineyard Theater. Uh, next up, Jan, we're going to talk about Edward Albee's At Home at the Zoo, Home Life and the zoo story at Signatures. So uh, tell us about this group. Well, I'm really excited to talk about this because uh, recently a friend said to me, don't you like anything? Everything you've been talking about, you've been sort of critical and negative about. We just finished talking about the amateurs in that way. But uh, this production, I thought, was just really excellent. Uh, The... Signature Theatre Company, which everyone knows, uh, has a history of dedicating seasons to playwrights. And uh, the first one they did was um, uh, Linus Linney uh, back, I guess, in like 91 or something. The third playwright that they chose to do that was Edward Albee back in 93. And I think it was at a time when, when Albee was not as revered. Um, He was going through a difficult period. And it helped to remind people of what a talent uh, he was. And Signature's relationship with uh, Albee continued through to uh, the end of his life when he died a couple of years ago. And they've continued to do uh, occasional productions of his shows. This is a double bill that's composed of At the Zoo, which was Albee's first produced play. It was produced uh, in Europe, I think in Germany, I'm not sure, in a double bill with a Beckett play, which is kind of a nice way to launch your career. Um, This is back, I think, in the late 50s. And then about 40-something years later, he wrote a companion piece to At the Zoo, which is called Home Life, and it deals with one of the same characters. After he wrote Home Life, he required that any company doing Home Life has to do the two plays in tandem. And so the formal name of this production is Edward Albee's At Home at the Zoo, colon, home life, and the zoo story, um, which is kind of awkward, but uh, but there's nothing awkward about the production. <laughs> um, the Lots of people probably uh, are, are familiar with the zoo story. It's a very simple premise. Uh, a guy is sitting on a bench in Central Park, reading his book. Another man uh, comes up and starts talking to him and telling him he's just come from the zoo the guy who's reading his book uh his name is peter he's trying to be uh nice about being interrupted but the other guy we learn his name is jerry just continues to pick at him and to interrupt him and as their encounter goes on it seems that jerry is becoming more and more menacing that whole feeling of unease that uh, uh, be so liked to play with was there at the beginning in this first produced play. And their altercation just uh, spirals into something unexpected. And um, the prequel that uh, be wrote shows Peter at home having uh, a discussion with his wife. Her name is Anne. And the discussion that he has 
also goes to unexpected places. And we find that the reason Peter is sitting on that bench where Jerry finds him is because basically he's trying to get out of the house uh, from Anne, where he's just had a, a, an uncomfortable encounter. They're two simple premises. A couple has a, a, a an argument. A guy is interrupted by someone who seems uh, a little bit off. And uh, yet they're both two very powerful um, uh, uh, plays. And in this production, which was directed by Lila Nugabauer, who is becoming um, a, a pretty omnipresent, but that's probably because she's a really good director. And uh, she has cast Katie Finneran as Anne, Robert Sean Leonard as Peter, and Paul Sparks as Jerry. And they are just all superb. Uh, Katie Finneran was a total surprise to me in this. I've usually seen her do comedic roles and have really enjoyed her in those. There is humor, as in all I'll be placed. There's some humor, but this is a, a more dramatic role, and she was just so moving uh, in in this role. The role of Jerry is really sort of the showpiece, and Paul Sparks just hits every beat of this volatile guy. You don't know what he's going to do or say next. Robert Sean Leonard is the person who, as Peter, appears in both. And his role is the more quiet and receptive role as both his wife and this guy in the street are kind of venting and prodding and provoking him. And so it is the more difficult role. And yet I thought he just handled it so well that he was the anchor that you need to connect those two plays and we take the journey with him and at the end we have had the experience that that he's had which which is a, a, a shaking experience i i just really can't say um enough about or praise enough this uh production wow so um, that is the Albie plays uh, at home at the zoo, home life in the zoo story. That's at Signature, and it's playing through March 25th, so you have a few weeks uh, to check that out. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Michael, you got over to uh, the York Theatre Company Musicals in Mufti series, uh, where you saw Subways Are for Sleeping. Um, tell us a little bit about this show. Yes, Peter did a preview of it uh, for us last week. I think the the musicals in Mufti, they discourage full reviews because their rehearsal time is so limited. But I did just want to say that this one was very well done overall, and especially in terms of casting. Um, in the central uh, roles of the, I guess, the central couple, Tom and Angie, we had Eric William Morris and Elise Allen Louie, who it turns out are newlyweds in real life, so they had a tremendous huh. amount of <laughs> chemistry, yes, yes. And then in the secondary couple uh, of Charlie and Martha Vale, we had David Josephsberg, who I've seen in so many shows, um, Alter Boys, uh, Honey, Honeymoon in Vegas, and, and and several others, and Gina Milo or Milo, I'm not sure how she pronounced. And she was uh, fairly new to be, but she was really quite a presence on stage. Um, this show uh, the, has an, an originally a book and lyrics by Betty Comden and Adolph Green, suggested by the book by Edmund G. Love, music by Julie Stein. Uh, apparently, this. Uh, the book has been reworked to some extent for this production by Adolf Green's widow, Phyllis Newman, and by Stuart Ross, who directed this production. And I don't know the original well enough, certainly not um, to know how much they changed. But it's still um, a book that doesn't really work perfectly. It's about uh, people now, – nowadays we would call them homeless. But uh, the, the, the show – 
premiered in late 1961, and it's set around that time. And it's about uh, this bunch of people living off the grid, as it were. Um, they are homeless, but they uh, they they're uh, one <laughs> interesting thing about them is that they're all determined to fit in uh, and not appear to be homeless. They're all impeccably dressed and clean, and they find various ways to stay that way. Um, so it's not, it, you know, quote-unquote bum-type homeless. It's this whole group of people who've kind of checked out of uh, the rat race and are, and are living off the grid, as it were. Uh, I think that one reason why this show was not a hit when it opened uh, in late 1961 is maybe it was a little too early for that kind of story um, to to resonate with audiences, uh, with mass audiences, uh, the Broadway-type audiences, because, um, you know, not many years later than we started to get into um, – hippies and and dropouts and and uh, more focus on people who are not living as part of society uh in you know on, on the whole and just kind of carving out their own paths so i think that perhaps uh that might have something to do with why this show was not successful at the time uh the book as i say it uh it, it you know it can be a little dicey considering the subject matter, but the score uh, is really quite wonderful. Several several really great songs. Um, some uh, the only one that I guess is somewhat famous is called "Come Once in a Lifetime," uh, but there are a few others, including a really beautiful one called "Ride Through the Night." Um, so uh, Julie Stein, I don't I don't know if he was capable of writing a bad score. Uh, certainly he did not in this case. It's just that um, the very offbeat subject matter and perhaps the timing is what worked against this show in the beginning. And so it was really good to see it uh, through a modern day perspective and, and look back and think about um, how audiences might have reacted to it back then. And of course, you can look up the reviews if you want to uh, see them. This was the famous show, as Peter mentioned, where um, David Merrick was the producer and he went out and found seven people who had the same names as the seven major drama critics <laughs> for the New York papers. And he got them, he you know, took them out to dinner or whatever and, and basically paid them to give uh, rave quotes for the show. And then he tried to print this in an ad, which um, two of the papers uh, caught it before it ran, but, but it did run in, in one of the major papers before they, they realized what was happening. Uh, and then as it turned out, uh, that wasn't absolutely necessary because there, some of the reviews were very good and then some were mixed and some were negative. Um, but that is, I guess... The main reason why subways are for sleeping, uh, I guess that's the big footnote, the big asterisk uh, next to that title in musical theater history is the, the stunt that David Merrick pulled. But also um, Phyllis Newman, who apparently had to audition many, many times to the show, even though her husband co-wrote it, Adolph Green, uh, she wound up winning the uh, Tony Award for Best featured actress in a musical over Barbara Streisand for I Can Get It For You Wholesale. So that um, that is another asterisk, another asterisk next to it. And this is the kind of show, of course, that's perfect for musicals in Mufti at the York Theater. Um, th this was the third and last in a little Julie Stein festival that they did because the first two shows were uh, Hallelujah Baby and the second one was an even more obscure show called Bar Mitzvah Boy. So I'm glad that they still do sometimes do the really, really obscure ones because we need somebody to do them. Michael, what's the difference between the way um, musicals in Mufti works and Encores works? Well, you know, this one, I, I actually had not seen a Mufti in a while. I thought that they were uh, moving uh, – less away from staged reading uh, staged readings and more towards uh full performances without scripts but in this one they actually had music stands uh and there was a fair amount of blocking and staging regardless but they they did, did still have 
music stands, which um, whereas at encores, I, as, as we've discussed, I think that scripts have been really eliminated now mm-hmm. uh, because and I think they were able to do that. It all has to do with the amount of rehearsal time and what uh, I think really what equity, you know, what the union requires as far as what the actors are asked to do. So um, that is, I guess, a, a major a difference also the the york is so small and uh and also because of budgetary considerations there were only two musicians for this piano oh. david piano david hancock turner and bass george farmer whereas with encores you get right. a full orchestra and and production values of course are much less but but uh one major plus major major plus of musicals in mufti which i always like to mention is that it I guess it's one of the last few places you can go to hear people singing musical theater live with no amplification whatsoever Ah. and still be able to hear every word because it is an intimate space and they only have uh, very small uh, instrumental accompaniment, as I I mentioned. So that um, I, I mean, really, when you think about it. I don't know. There are there are very other, very few other places you can go to do that. I suppose maybe readings of musicals in rehearsal studios, <laughs> uh, but that's about it that that I can think of. Okay, so um, unfortunately, by the time you're listening to this, uh, this will be over. It uh, finishes March fourth this afternoon. Uh, over at the York Theatre Company. We'll have a link to that. They have uh, a few videos on the York website if you want to check them out as well. To uh, I guess they shot them in rehearsal or something. It's interesting that there is the uh, that there have been the rewrites by Phyllis Newman and Stuart Ross. I suppose maybe some people might think that that would indicate hopes for a future production, uh, you know, which I guess is always a hope. Uh, but we'll, we'll we'll certainly see about that. <laughs> All right, uh, Jan, you got down to uh, Lafayette Street to the public theater to see Kings. So tell us about Kings. This is my second time with Kings. There was a, a oh, I don't know if you call it a workshop, a showcase, a something uh, that was done at the Women's Project a couple of years ago uh, uh, with an entirely different cast. Um, and, uh, but I'm not sure if it was a different director. The, the reason I think this production is getting some attention is, um, in part because it's directed by Thomas Kale, who of course directed Hamilton. Um, it's written by, uh, Sarah Burgess and she, I think last a year had another production down at the public called Dry Powder. And Dry Powder was set in the world of uh, investment banking. This play is set in the world of political lobbyist. And uh, she obviously likes these uh, high-powered, high-ambition uh, uh, professions. The story is that there is this congresswoman who uh, is somewhat of a a renegade. She will not abide by by the the new rules of of politics, which involves dealing a lot with lobbyists, allowing them in some cases, as real-life lobbyists do, uh, to, to write parts of laws, certainly to uh, take as much money from the uh, interests that they represent as uh, is legal by law, to attend a lot of events that these lobbyists hold so that they're the, the people that they are represent and advocating for will have opportunities to buttonhole the uh, politicians. And she's just not having it even though the elders of her party are leaning on her to do this. We look at the plague goes to various events where there are lobbying efforts, and there are two female lobbyists. Um, For some reason, they 
they have been written that they were former lovers. They no longer are uh, partners. Each has gone off and found a uh, a new uh, partner. Uh, so that further complicates their relationship, but they are big deals in this lobbying world. And then there is a senator who's, uh, the, the two lobbyists are played by Aya Cash and Jillian Jacobs. Um, the uh, politician is played by Issa Davis, and she is written as a uh, black female politician when I saw the workshop production uh, our friend Quincy Tyler Bernstein uh, who we talked about with the amateurs uh, played <laughs> the role of the politician and the senior politician uh, is played by Zach, Zach Grenier it's uh, it, it, it's a pleasant and enjoyable uh, Burgess's dialogue is 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 snappy. Uh, she creates a plot where you're rooting for the person of integrity. Um, the ending is different in this production than it was in the workshop production, and I. Uh, would really uh, like to talk to to to, to Burgess. She, um, I don't think, is available because I asked um, to talk uh, with her uh, about why she she decided to make that change. Uh, it's it's it's, uh, and I'm not going to spoil. Don't worry, listeners. I'm not going to spoil that uh, for you. But but when you see it, if you see it, uh, just the opposite happened in the workshop protection. And so, um, which I have to say, I, I, I preferred the uh, uh, ending in the workshop production. Um, it, you know, it's in line with... Uh, House of Cards on uh, on Netflix, um, maybe a little bit of um, maybe I'm thinking of The Good Wife because of Zach Grenier, but th- these kinds of political dra- dramas that are trying to bring uh, us into what the process really is like uh, in 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 Washington. Um, it's uh, I don't. I don't know if it's because uh, Aya Cash and Jillian Jacobs are are TV people, uh, not TV people. They're both stage actresses and and have credits to their names, but have television shows that are currently on, or if it's because of Tommy Kale. But it seems to be a difficult uh, a ticket to get, and um, and celebrities seem to be uh, coming out to see it. When I was there, uh, Spike Lee was there uh, to, to, to see it. Um, uh, again, a, a, a nice, pleasant evening in the theater, but I, 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 don't, I, I wouldn't put it on my can't-miss list. So I checked it out here. Um, Kings was at the Women's Theater Project in something called the Pipeline Festival in 2016, directed by Adrian Campbell-Holt. Ah, okay. Um, and they've got uh, a bunch of things there. Something also interesting about this and uh, and this will lead us into our next thing is that uh, on this same billet as uh, Kings was a play called Queens. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Jan, you saw, you also saw it, Queens. So, uh, why don't you tell us about that, uh, for a minute or so? Okay. I didn't see it at the, uh, when it was at the Women's Project. Um, so th- this was my first encounter with it. I did have the opportunity to talk to the playwright, uh, Martina Mayoke, who, um, has become one of those playwrights who, when I see her name, I want to see the play. I don't even care who's in it. I don't care what the subject is about. Um, She's just uh, 
her first play that I saw was, I believe, called Ironbound, um, and it um, was about a Polish uh, 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 woman immigrant. Then uh, I'm going to forget the name of her second play, which was at uh, Manhattan Theater Club last season, which dealt with two people who uh, had disabilities. Um, that was just a terrific play. And this one is about a group of women who share a living space in an apartment in Queens. Queens applies to the borough and is a play on words applying to the women. These are all immigrant women. They come from all different parts of the world, and they're just trying to make it here in America. They've, in some cases, left their children behind. They're worried. Uh, they have low-income jobs. They're worried about just making it. They're wondering. They're worried about their immigration status. It tracks, it, it, it goes back and forth in time, and it looks at one woman who has made it uh, and her experience as she deals with women who are going through the journey, the experience that, that she did. Um, it's, it's not a perfect play. But it is certainly a timely play. It's very uh, thought-provoking, very, very well acted uh, by a, a, a cast of, I think, about six or seven uh, uh, actresses. And uh, again, uh, she is definitely a playwright to, to keep your eye on, Martina Mayok. Cost of Living was the name of the play. Yes, thank you. Thank at you. MTC. And yes, and I really love that one and Iron Bound. I'm, I'm glad to hear that Martina Majok keeps being produced. And I hope I'm saying her name right. <laughs> no, no, it is Mayok. I asked. Oh, Mayok. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, Mayok. she actually said, yeah. it, she's, she said it's like my oak, like in the tree. Martina Mayok. <laughs> I said on uh, I said on today on Broadway that I was I was very happy to see on her website she has a pronunciation guide on her first page uh. of her website, and I think that everybody should have that. <laughs> yes, and Matt my Tem bad for not looking it up. I'm sorry about that. No, uh, Matt Tamanini pointed out that uh, Matt does a lot of uh, coverage of college and professional sports for uh, various websites, and he said all the. Um, all the uh, publicity guides for the professional and college sports teams have pronunciations for oh. everybody involved, uh, from coaches to players to you know various alumni and things like that, uh, right in the uh, in the publicity guide, which I think that all the Broadway publicists should now do. <laughs> yeah, uh, let, I don't think that's going to happen, but I wish they would. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Michael. Yes. Help me pronounce this next guy's name. Lenny something, Bernstein, <laughs> Bernstein, whatever. So you got over to 92nd Street Y to see Lenny's Lyricists at the Lyrics and Lyricists series. Uh, so tell us about that. Yes, and we are talking about Leonard Bernstein, which apparently, from all I've read, is was his preferred pronunciation, uh, although many people say Bernstein, which I guess is an Americanization of it. Uh, but anyway, uh, this program was had as its artistic director, Rob Fisher, uh, writer and host, Amanda Green, daughter of one of the lyricist in question, the late Adolph Green, and Phyllis Newman, whom we just mentioned <laughs> in regard to Subways Are for Sleeping. And this uh, show was directed by Gary Griffin, and the cast included Michaela Bennett, Andrea Burns, Darius DeHaas, Howard McGillan, and Tony Yazbek. Uh, this was uh, a, a very strong entry in the Lyrics and Lyricists series, and I, uh, oh, and noteworthy was the fact that um, Andrea Burns, unfortunately, 
became ill during the the brief run of the show. Uh, and the night I saw her, uh, this the show, uh, one of her main numbers was actually handed to a, a wonderful soprano named Cree Carrico, who apparently knew the piece. It's uh, the piece in question is what a movie from Trouble in Tahiti, uh, Bernstein's opera with lyrics by Bernstein. Uh, and uh, I so I think at, at, w- at least one performance, they just cut this very difficult aria uh, because, uh, unfortunately, Andrea Prince was ill. But then they found this this Cree Carico who had sung the aria somewhere and she came out and did it. Uh, she had a music stand, but but she did it flawlessly. And the audience was really, really with her. Um, the rest of the cast was stellar. Uh, let me just give a. Uh, a rundown of the shows and the lyricists uh, from we heard songs from on the town with lyrics by betty comden and adolph green uh trouble in tahiti as i said lyrics by bernstein himself wonderful town again lyrics by comden and green um can the candide section had lyrics by three different lyricists because that show had multiple <laughs> lyricists um it had, including an obscure song by John Latouche, uh, Ring Around a Rosie, which is about venereal disease <laughs> and um, uh, has not been included in, in all productions by any means. Uh, it's, a, it's one of the more obscure pieces in, in Candide or sometimes not in Candide. Um, oh, Happy We, the duet uh, was uh, the Candide and Kuniganda duet was done by Tony Yazbek and Michaela Bennett. And that had lyrics by Richard Wilbur. And I Am Easily Assimilated uh, had lyrics by Leonard Bernstein. And and apparently, according to Amanda Green's narration, uh, one line uh, or at least one line in Spanish that was written by Bernstein's wife, Felicia Monteliagra. Um, so I never knew that before. Uh, there, there were things I learned in, during this concert that uh, I did not know. And I, I mean, I, I think I have a fair amount of knowledge of Bernstein, but it's always uh, one of the uh, major functions of these evenings are that they're educational as well as entertaining. So I just wanted to point that out. Um, and uh, let's see. Uh, also from Candy, we heard um, Make Our Garden Grow. And then the song that became that, which was or- originally written by Bernstein as a song for his young children. Didn't know that. Um, there was a simple song from Mass, uh, Bernstein's Mass, which has lyrics by Bernstein and Stephen Schwartz. And then finally, uh, well, not finally, but uh, – penultimately uh, songs from West Side Story with lyrics by someone you might have heard of named Mm -hmm. Stephen Sondheim. And uh, the most fascinating thing there was that they did a section of the prologue. uh, The men in in this program sang a section of the prologue from West Side Story uh, from the time when it was intended to be sung rather than danced. And I have seen lyrics that Sondheim wrote for this in, uh, he, he published them in his book, uh, finishing the hat, I believe. Uh, but I didn't know what music those lyrics went to. And it turns out (laughs) that a lot of them go to music that we, we do know very well from the prologue where it is only dance, not sung. So that was fascinating to hear. And I, I, can pretty safely say that that well it definitely was the first time i've heard those lyrics sung and probably the last so i'm i I would have been thrilled to attend this concert if only for that reason and then um uh to end the concert we had only one selection from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, which was Bernstein's collaboration with Alan J. Lerner, uh, an unfortunately flop Broadway musical from 1976. Take Care of This House is the piece that we frequently hear from that, and it is beautiful, and it was beautiful on this occasion. And the entire cast sang that, and then they ended with Some Other Time from On the Town. So um, another good night at the 92nd Street Y for lyrics and lyricists. It sounds great. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 92nd Street, why? I, I almost feel like we're going to have to add a uh, section on today on Broadway about what's coming up at 92nd Street, why? Because 
when I was checking this out, I was like, how did I miss this Lenny's Lyricist? That's, uh, it sounds like something I would have gone to. Uh, coming up tomorrow uh, at the 92nd Street Y, Monday, May f- uh, March 5th, excuse me, Monday, March 5th at 8 p.m., they're having a concert celebration of It Should Have Been You, the uh, Broadway production. Uh-huh. So that's at 92nd Street Y. And coming up in April is An Evening with the Band's Visit, Sunday, April 15th at 7.30. Oh, yes. They're going to have uh, a panel uh, with uh, members of the Band's Visit cast and creative team and talk about it and things like that. I mean, that's – I mean – that's going to be a must-see for for Broadway fans. So I don't know if it's sold out already, but you should check it out. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Ninety uh, Second Street Y is really uh, it's really where it's happening. Mm. Okay, so uh, Jan, you got a chance to see uh, Relevance. So tell us about Relevance. Oh, I'm going. Sorry to end of on a down note. Um, Relevance uh, is uh, at MCC uh, Theater, and it's uh, written by J.C. Lee, uh, directed by Liesl Tommy, and it is a play that looks at the difference, different ways in which older and younger women look at feminism and that sounded really interesting to me and the cast um, which is led by Jane Howdy Shell and Pascal Armand um, who people may remember from Eclipsed um, she was the most humorous of the four women in uh, in that play um, made me really want to see it. The problem, the other two actors in it are Molly Camp and and Richard Mazur. The problem is that the playwright didn't figure out how to dramatize the arguments she wants to make. And so the characters literally stand uh, almost center stage and just deliver long speeches. Uh, making the case for their various points. It just became one diatribe uh, after another. It starts off very wittily. Um, The women are at a convention and uh, they're on a panel and uh, Molly Camp as the... uh, Uh, person who organizes uh, the facilitator of the panel is asking questions of Jane Howdyshell, the older and and more famous of the two uh, writers, and then then of uh, Pascal Armand's character, who is a uh, young uh, up-and-coming feminist and who is very uh, socially uh, aware in terms of social media. And that that's amusing, and um, and we think we're off for a good ride. But then the play again just descends into one speech uh, after another. So I'm afraid this is another disappointment. Oh, that's so sad because it's got such a great uh, group of people together there to do that. So. Um... Yeah, guess, if it weren't if it weren't for 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 Jane, uh, uh, very smart to get Jane Howdy Shell, but yeah. great smart to get Jane Howdy Shell for anything. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, so uh, she gives as much uh, gravity as she can uh, to 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 the performance. And I never, I never regret seeing Jane Howdy Shell. So that was, that that kept me going. But I, but I was disappointed. All right, that's relevance, and uh, it's an MCC production. But it is down to the Lucy Lortel on Christopher Street. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes, and uh, take it from there. So, Michael. Um, this week we had the passing of Harvey Schmidt, uh, and I wondered, uh, I spoke to 
Peter earlier in the week uh, because we knew that Peter wasn't going to be on this weekend. What is your take on uh, the passing of Harvey? Well, I'm sure Peter has a lot of eloquent things to say, but I, I thought he was one of our best composers. And I would say in a way uh, our most underrated in the sense that I think if someone made a list of the greatest musical theater composers, they probably most people would probably not place him on it. And that's mostly because he really only had um, one big hit, which I think we know what that was, the Fantastics. Uh, and then two uh, semi-hits, I do I, two Broadway musicals. I Do, I Do, the two-character musical that originally starred Mary Martin and Robert Preston. And then 110 in the Shade, which is the musical version of The Rainmaker. All of these written with his longtime lyricist uh, and book writing partner, Tom Jones. And I really loved the Jones and Schmidt, Jones and Schmidt shows, even the less famous ones. Uh, Celebration is another one. There are several others. Uh, the Fantastics is, you know, is, was a phenomenon. But even that, uh, it, it was an off-Broadway off show for, for decades. And even the revival was off-Broadway. It probably would not work on Broadway. So that's probably a good thing. Uh, and it did receive a movie version, but the movie was um, kind of troubled and uh, it, it didn't get much of a release. And uh, I'm not sure even how easy it is to find now. So uh, for all these reasons, uh, you know, lack of movie versions and uh, and lack of hit Broadway status, um, I think that Mr. Schmidt didn't get his due, but his stuff is so beautiful. I, I, I mean, really gorgeous uh, melodies, but also he, he was great at comedy numbers and uh, different types of pastiche uh, when necessary. I, I think that you cannot really do better than the score of the Fantastics, and there's a reason why it... it ran for decades and decades and then uh again recently off broadway for i think 11 years that time um and i hope um that it keeps being done uh, it's it's a very simple musical and uh, uh uh in our present time i i'm not sure if it's popular as it once was but i hope that people still keep doing it i think of it as almost like the our town of musicals mm -hmm. and it's it, that's interesting because jones and schmidt did write a musical version of our town which never really got off the the ground i think it was called grover's corners um I, I did get a chance to meet Harvey Schmidt uh, once and, and to interview him on the phone not too many years ago, and he was wonderful. He had um, uh, retired to Texas where he, uh, he he came from originally, and uh, he had not been part of the uh, – you know, the uh, musical theater life in New York for, for some time, except that he would sometimes uh, come back and he, he, he performed a show with Tom Jones. Uh, they did it at the York and I think they may have done it elsewhere as well. Uh, but that is a that really is, uh, I guess, uh, yet another marking of the end of an era of musical theater that we're, you know, that many people consider the golden age. And also, uh, of course, um, the Fantastics was uh, – instrumental in the growth of the off-Broadway movement uh, since it opened in 1960. Um, and not long after that, that Three Penny Opera production, which it had given a jolt to off-Broadway, and then we had this as a, as a follow-up. So uh, if those two shows hadn't come along, and I don't know if off-Broadway would have uh, developed in the way that it did. So he was a really uh, influential figure uh, Jones and Schmidt, uh, they were influential figures, and I just I, I urge everyone to listen to their the recordings of their scores if you don't know them all already. Uh, one quite obscure show of theirs that I absolutely adore is called Philemon, uh, and I. I would really urge you to try to check that out because it's just beautiful and very, very moving. All right. So also uh, we heard yesterday that David Ogden Stiers, um, um, who was 
probably be most known for his role on MASH, on the television show MASH, but had uh, quite a number of Broadway shows that also had also passed away. And we wanted to acknowledge that he uh, most recently did Irving Berlin's White Christmas on Broadway in uh, in 2009. So um, before we head out for the day and get on to trivia, Peter is here to do trivia. I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by heading to um, Broadway Radio, and there's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to an Apple Podcast. We can listen to it in many ways. iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Stitcher plays us. Google Play. Anywhere that you can find finer podcasts, you will find Broadway Radio podcasts. Contact information for Jan and for Michael and for me can be found at Broadway Radio in the show notes, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including those uh, 92nd Street Y things, uh, Kings and Queens, Mufti, <laughs> things like that, uh, Albie and the Amateurs. Um, so let me get Peter in here to answer last week's trivia. All right, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's question? Sure. The question was, in the 50s, a Tony-winning musical had a cast member whose first and last name was precisely the same as a well-known and much-beloved character who appeared in a novel, a play, and a musical. What's this person and character's name? Well, I'll tell you, you know, I was doing research on Redhead, and I couldn't believe that I ran into the name Mame Dennis as an actress. Uh, and, of course, she uh, was the main character in Auntie Mame the novel, Auntie Mame the play, and Mame the musical. So, um, <laughs> I, I, in a way, it was an easy question, but I thought, well, since I said it was the 50s, um, at least it's 1959, and I'm sure a lot of people got discouraged after a few years and said, ah, I'm not going to go ahead. But anyway, not Richard Brennan. He was the first to get it, followed by Jack Leshner, Donald Tessioni, and Lorraine Lyson. So, that's last week's question. This week's, what do By Jeeves, The Girl Who Came to Supper, Legally Blonde, Love Letters, Lovely Ladies, Kind Gentlemen, On Your Toes, Ragtime, Rent, and Starlight Express have in common? All right. So on behalf of uh, Jan Simpson and Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Videos this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Not a cloud across the sky, not a sign on the horizon. And it's gonna be another hot day Yes, it's gonna be another hot day Underneath the earth is burning Crops is bad and land is dry Still the sun keeps on returning and it's gonna be another hot day Yes, it's gonna be another hot day When the rain comes What a day that'll be What a revelation When the To feel it streaming down When the rain comes 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 Overhead the sun is shining not a cloud across the sky Not a sign on the horizon And it's gonna be another hot day Yes, it's gonna be another hot day It's gonna be another Gonna be another scorcher 
today.